0: The scripture for the sermon, well, it's actually the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. As you just heard, we're we're going through the Apostles' Creed. Um, The reason is, this is the foundational creed of the Christian Church. If you can affirm this, you can be a member of our Church. This is all that we ask in terms of belief, and it is shared by nearly every other branch of the Christian Church, the Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church. It's called the Apostles' Creed because it is a summary of what the Apostles originally taught, whether or not they actually wrote it, Who knows? They are, after all, mainly illiterate. But it is truly a summary of the teaching of the Bible and the essence of what they said. And so it really is basic Christianity. We looked last week at the first part. What does it mean to believe? And the notion that is taught us in the Bible, that belief... Is rational, but also it ha- you have to know facts, you have to know the details of the Bible, details of Jesus, his history, his life, what he said. But there's also a supernatural element. Belief is always God reaching out to us. Right now, I would like to look at this first stanza. Not so much I believe, but what we believe in. God, the Father Almighty, Maker, of heaven and earth. What does that mean? What is its significance? Well, I personally was challenged on this recently. As many of you know, I went to England because my dad was sick, and he's much better, and thank you for your prayers. But while I was there, Brexit happened. The week I was there, it happened. And uh, everyone that I met, every store, every gathering, the pub, All my friends, everybody that I connected with, that's all we talked about. The BBC decided it was their mission to talk about this, and so it was 24-hour-a-day discussions bringing in experts to talk about Brexit, whether it was good, whether it was bad, what it meant. But what was shocking to me was just how absent God was from the discussion. Whatever groups they put together, whatever panels, whatever discussions they had, there were never any believers. There were never any priests or pastors. There was no sense of Britain's Christian history and what this might mean for that. Um, no talk about whether we should seek God's guidance over this huge decision. No prayer. Nothing. In fact, the only place that God was present was negatively. It seemed like every discussion panel had to have a militant atheist in the uh, kind of lineage or disciple of uh, Christopher Hitchens. I don't know if you know him. He wrote a book, uh, God is Not Great, How How Religion Poisons Everything. There was always an atheist with that kind of spirit saying either that the problem was religion and the immigration of uh, Muslims to Europe and to uh, England, or that people who believed in religion were the kinds of people who would vote to leave because they were ignorant, stupid, they didn't realize that science had disproved Christianity or replaced Christianity. In fact, it was was shocking how much that is true in Europe. Science and technology has held in such high esteem that it seems to be the default there. And religion is just absent. Not even a subject of argument. 20 years ago, my friends used to challenge my faith. Now, that just think it's a little sad, not even worthy of comment. And it challenged me. Why do I believe? What do I believe? Has science really disproved Christianity? Is it relevant now? Are Christians really intolerant, ignorant bigots as was so often said? It seems like Islam and Christianity are now conflated into one and we're all potential terrorists if we believe. What to think of it? I mean, it, it really was a challenge. I prayed about it while I was there. I I read the Bible. I tried to go through all the reasons that I became a Christian. And what do I believe? And what I believe is God is real. And he is the Father Almighty. And he is the maker of heaven and earth. You know, Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from him, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. I've always believed that. I've never had a sense that science and faith are in conflict there's the book of nature and there is the book of scripture and they have the same author and they're compatible when I was at seminary I went to Prince's Seminary in the summer we used to walk to the Institute for Advanced Study it was only like four or five houses down from where my dormitory was and they had this delightful ceremony in the afternoons three o'clock every afternoon they had tea and biscuits very civilized And we used to walk down and go into their lounge, and we would share tea and biscuits with all these brilliant minds. And it was amazing how interested they were in us as uh, seminary students. There was no sense of conflict or being in opposing camps. And ever since, I've I've tried to read and watch lectures from the Institute of Advanced Study. My favorite, by the way, is a guy called Nima Akani Hamed, He's probably the um, best known and most prolific astrophysicist at the moment, theoretical physicist. And uh, what I'm about to share with you, I've got mainly from him. Because I want to talk about this idea. Has science and technology replaced Christianity as a source of faith and meaning? Are Christians all ignorant bigots, subject to a tyrannical God? So let me introduce you to a concept. See, I think that the the public speakers, the sort of people who speak and debate and use the authority of science, are not aware of what scientists actually do and what they think about. So here's a concept I want to introduce you. Common sense and science tells us that over time, things fall apart. If you build a sandcastle, it will crumble back into a pile of sand. It will just become another part of the beach. If you build a house, it's going to take a little bit longer, but eventually, it might take centuries, it will crumble back into dust. The world is filled with the ruins of things, of ancient cities, of buildings, of temples. Everything falls apart. Your nice, shiny car is going to be a clunker in 20 years. Your beautiful new iPhone, one day you'll drop it and the, the screen will crack and it will be an old iPhone. Things do not stay the same. The clothes that you wear, your teeth, everything over time decays, crumbles. It's a commonplace. Things get old, they fall apart, they wear out. In science, there is a measure of this tendency. It's called entropy. It's a quantity. Your beautifully structured and designed sandcastle has an entropy close to zero. But as it crumbles, as it returns to a pile of sand, as it returns to the beach, its entropy increases. The highest entropy, by the way, is one. Everything is between zero and one. Basically, it's very easy for sand to be a beach. It happens naturally. You get a pile of sand, wind, and waves will turn it into a beach. The chances of it happening are almost 100%, one in one. But sandcastles are rare. You don't see sand and wind building sandcastles. The chances of seeing it are close to zero. So entropy starts low, and over time, increases. So that's all very interesting, Pastor. Why are you bringing that up? Well, I'll tell you. Entropy, this idea, is not a law. Every known object in the universe is subject to entropy, to increasing entropy. That means that everything science or the human race has ever looked at is getting older, is falling apart, is crumbling. And it's true of everything. Galaxies and stars and planets and continents and mountains and sandcastles. Even individual atoms have a lifespan. They will eventually decay. Entropy is always and everywhere increasing. It should be called a law of nature. But it's not. The problem is that laws of nature have no exceptions. That's why they're called laws. But entropy has two exceptions. It's kind of embarrassing the origin of life, and the origin of the universe. Why? Well, life is easy. Complex and structured things, like cities, buildings, people, sandcastles, they decay back into dust. That is natural. But how do you reverse that? How does dust, literally the earth, chemicals and compounds that make the earth, How does that turn into a living cell filled with DNA and intricately folded proteins and extraordinary molecular machines? That is not entropy increasing. That is a massive decrease in entropy. If you saw a sandcastle suddenly build itself out of sand spontaneously, you'd realize that something was wrong and yet that's what happened when the chemical compounds of the world the earth, the dust somehow became the first simplest living cell where did the entropy go? where did all the disorder go so it could become ordered and structured and complex? who built the sandcastle? it's a massive hole nobody knows science doesn't know And Nima Akani Hamad has pointed out that it is a huge problem. There is another problem, the origin of the universe. Since uh, American astronomer Edwin Hubble discovered that the universe was expanding back in 1929, scientists believed that the universe came from a tiny, primordial, dense, infinitely uh, energetic infinitely small point. And everything that we see exploded out of it in a big bang. Now, when things blow up, usually they're very disordered. It should have just been an expanding, slowly cooling glass gas cloud. And yet, the universe is filled with structure. The universe is filled with order. The universe is filled with energy that allows things like stars to exist, that allows things like astrophysicists and people to exist. Where did that order and that structure come from? It's becoming increasingly apparent to physicists that the fact that entropy is increasing over time means that in the past it must have been lower. And at the beginning, it must have been extremely low. That means extremely improbable. And the numbers are vast. Not just millions and billions to one. But huge numbers that have no names. With 600 zeros. That are literally close to zero. In fact, many physicists believe zero, it was the original entropy of the universe. All the structure came... Because it was highly structured in the beginning. The rules of physics, the, uh, the way that gravity has shaped galaxies and stars. It is highly unlikely that a simple explosion would create that stuff. Entropy zero in the beginning of the universe. Well, what does that mean? Well, whatever is the source of zero entropy can not be a physical thing. It can't be anything ordinary. One science writer, Greg Easterberg, said this. Nobody knows beyond foggy conjecture what caused the Big Bang. What, if anything, was present before the event? Or how could there have been a prior condition in which nothing existed? Explanations of how the mass of an entire universe could pop out of a void are especially unsatisfying. You need an origin that has zero entropy. That is, it is perfect. Untouched by, t- by time, not subject to any decay or corruption. Perfect. Outside of time and space, not physical, not bound by time. Unchanging. Because any change requires time. And change is what entropy is all about, and there is no entropy there. Does that sound like anybody or anything that you know? Psalm 102 says this, it's talking about God. In the beginning, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. Heavens and earth have a lifespan. They will all wear out like a garment. They are subject to entropy. Like clothing, you will change them and they will be discarded. But you remain the same and your years will never end. You remain the same. You are unchanging because you are perfect. You are uncorrupted. and your years will never end. You are timeless. You make time and space, but you yourself are out of them. It's talking about God. Now, have you ever heard that argument before? This is what they're talking about at the Princeton Institute for Advanced Study. It hasn't made the debates yet. But when you listen to people saying that Christianity is incompatible with science, that somehow it's been trumped or replaced, That is nonsense. And this is not God of the gaps. This shows you how the universe looks like it was created for us to make life possible. This is what is being debated right now. In fact, in response to this, this fact, and it's a troublesome fact for atheistic scientists, the latest theories now require that there are multiple worlds, multiple universes. If this universe is very unlikely, then the only way it's possible, if you have almost infinite other universes that we can't see, that allow one out of a billion zillion bazillion to look like this. But of course, that's not science. It's untestable. You can't touch or measure any of these other universes. What it is, is theology. It is creating theories to try to evade the fact that everything we know about our universe suggests that it was created for us. What about the second argument? God is not great because terrible things are done in the name of religion. That Much of the violence that we see, the terrorism that Gary talked about, is the result of people of faith. How do we respond to that? Christopher Hitchens, who died in 2011, wrote a book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Hugely influential, it was a bestseller, number one on the New York Times uh, list, and it was in America, bestseller in, in England also. And he said, God is a tyrant, because there cannot be any argument or compromise with his commands. What he says goes, that's what tyrants are like. And God must be an evil tyrant because he allows all the suffering and misery we see in the world that he created. In fact, Christopher Hitchens said this, God is a worse tyrant than any North Korean leader because if you are unfortunate enough to suffer the misery of life in North Korea, at least one day you'll die and escape. But death is no escape from an almighty God who punishes with an eternal hell. God is an evil tyrant. Punishing everyone, and nobody has any escape from him. Is that the God what we worship? I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Well, the Almighty part suggests absolute control. He's right about that. And absolute control might suggest tyranny after all it's a truism power corrupts but absolute power corrupts absolutely and that might be true of power in human hands but as we've just established God is not like a human being he is utterly transcendent and different from any other thing that we can possibly know more than that he's a father Luke 55 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him when he is near. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. That's an odd tyrant. Who doesn't kick down the door and force himself, but has to be found that has to be sought after, who is humble enough to wait for the door to be opened to him. Is that tyranny? Does that sound like tyranny? And the fact that God is our Father. You know, there's a a translation issue here. Our English word father is a direct translation from the Greek pater. The reason for that is that uh, Greek was the language the New Testament was written in. It was the language of education and the language of literacy. But most Israelites didn't use Greek. In fact, we know that Jesus and his disciples spoke in Aramaic, which is a form of Hebrew. Aramaic was literally Jesus' mother tongue. He would have learned it from Mary. And as a baby, he would have called her Amma. Literally, mama or mummy. And his father Joseph, he would have called him Abba. Literally, dad. Dada or daddy. What is remarkable is that the Bible tells us that that is the same phrase that Jesus always used of God. Whenever Jesus prays, he spoke To God, his Father, as Abba. In fact, when we prayed the Lord's Prayer, the word there is Abba, Daddy. In Mark, Mark recalls in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus fell to the ground and prayed that if possible the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So what does that mean? Well, just think for a moment. Jesus invites us, and in the Lord's Prayer, commands us to pray, not to our Father, but to Daddy. It's so shocking that we can't even bring ourselves to say it. That's why we use the word Father. It's just, it is shocking to think of God that way, to imagine praying that intimately. But that's what we are invited to say when we pray. And really when we translate the apostles when we use the apostles creed we wouldn't we shouldn't say i believe in god the father almighty we should say i believe in almighty god who i know as daddy that is the intimacy that is implied is that the language of tyranny does that sound like king jong in north korea Do you think he invites that intimacy from anyone in North Korea? This is the language of love. This is the language of of intimacy without any forcing. A divine courtesy. No tyranny. No forcing of the will. And think what it means. If it is true, and it is, that Jesus invites us to relate to his daddy, as he did, then that is a completely open door. Think of how much religious nonsense is eliminated by this single fact. No protocol, no etiquette, Christian worship and prayer. You don't have to wear special clothes, no elaborate ceremonies, no special materials or apparatus. No special status, no esoteric training, no magical incantations, no secret temples or oracles. Just Daddy. And that's all he wants from us. Because he wants us personally. He wants to relate to us as a child relates to his father, as a family member, He wants to enjoy and delight in us without any barriers. And a final thought. How does he open the relationship? Not by sending armies. Not by appearing as a tyrant with legions. Not showing up as some glorious, unapproachable king. But by sending his son, Jesus. A child. As vulnerable as it's possible to be, who could be betrayed by a human kiss. This is not a tyrant out to control the world. This is a father who wants a relationship and invites us in. And more than just sending Jesus vulnerable, more than just sending him as a representative, think what happens to Jesus. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. The maker of heaven and earth enters his creation and becomes a human being in the earth, walks with us and suffers with us, and then allows himself to be unmade on the cross. Does that sound like a tyrant? This perfect, infinite, Omnipotent God, perfect in every way, allows himself to suffer alongside us, in our place. Allows his life to be taken away, his body broken. The maker of heaven and earth allows his creation to unmake him. Why? So we could be in relationship with our father. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I do, because it makes sense. It makes sense of the world that we live in. It makes sense of the nature of God. It makes sense of what it means to be a human being. We don't have to fear challenge. All we have to do is embrace what we've been given. I have no idea why that is happening, by the way. But anyway, maybe it's just saying time's up. So time's up. So, I'd like you to stand because I'd like us to end with the Apostles' Creed. This, as I say, is the summary of Christian belief. If you can say this and believe it, if this truly is what you believe, then this table, the Lord's table, is open to you. That's all you need. So, let's say it together I believe in God the Father Almighty. Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe, Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Lord, may this truth guide us and comfort us. Lord, because of this, we are never alone. Because of this, our lives have purpose and meaning. Because of this, we never need to be afraid. We thank you for these truths. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.